This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us again as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, we'll take you behind the scenes of what is arguably the most important news site on the planet, the Drudge Report. Veteran White House reporter Joe Curl goes on the record for the first time about his work for Drudge. Then, the polyoptics of the president's trip to Latin America. Five days abroad, and CNN's senior White House correspondent Ed Henry was inside the bubble for the whole thing. We'll talk about the journey and the stagecraft behind it. I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. It's a site I encourage you to check out and join the conversation. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, and it is great to have you here. Great to be here, Adam. Josh, we have an amazing show today here on Polyoptics. One of the things I'm most excited about is that we're going to take people behind the scenes of the Drudge Report in a way that they have never been before. Look, it's one of the most mysterious publications in the country, really in the world, uh, with nine and a half billion visits per year, dwarfs any other uh, circulation of any other publication. And would you be surprised to know that a former top White House correspondent is actually an editor of the Drudge Report? Look, any understanding about how Drudge works, other than thinking about Matt Drudge and his boxer shorts in Los Angeles, is more than we've known before. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. That's exactly right. And Josh, you served in the Clinton administration. I served in the Bush administration. Both of us have been impacted hard by the Drudge Report. That's right, Adam. You know, nothing was ever as nerve-wracking as when you decided to go back to your office, sat at your keyboard, typed in DrudgeReport.com, and there was that blue and red siren staring you in the face, meaning ominous news to come. So let's get right to it, Josh. All right, Adam, let's go. So we are joined now by Joe Curl, longtime White House correspondent for The Washington Times. He's been on the beat here in Washington for over a decade, having covered three presidencies. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks. Appreciate it. I know you worked uh, a little bit with uh, my colleague, Josh King. Josh, uh, you certainly know a little bit about this man and his reporting. I do. You know, one thing that I loved about the Washington Times during the Clinton years when I worked there is the Times gave much better attention to photography than at the time the Washington Post or the New York Times did. And so you could always count on Excellent reporting, but also beautiful layout of the pages of the Washington Times, and it really made for an in- for a wonderful uh, piece of paper in your hands during those days. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Take us for a second to the beginning of your career. There's a lot to talk about on polyoptics because you are one of the original reporters who has made great mention and given great thoughtfulness to how these things come to be, what the message and the image mean together in conveying that to the American public. But how did you get your start as a journalist uh, covering the White House, Joe? Well, after working a, a long time up up the ranks to get there, um, was an editor for uh, at the Times for about six years, um, moved over to the national desk, moved up to the top of the national desk, and then ran the uh, squad of reporters that handled the uh, the impeachment and the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. And so it was natural to just kind of jump over and, and, and hit the road at that point. You know, one of the things that uh, rings in my ear when I hear you say that, and I think Josh and I talk about it all the time, is 
the role that you played as an editor, I would assume, gave you the broad perspective to see sort of the big picture of these things, because the imagery and the optics of events are equally as important in our mind as the substance of them. But as an editor, if they're not on par in your mind, then the American people won't get it. Right. And I think I think that's the most fascinating thing is from, you know, I'm sure it started all the way back in Reagan and, and even before you go all the way back to Kennedy and the and the you know the debate and and all that, the first TV president. But really the time of Clinton, they were really beginning to hire a lot of outside people that were great at optics, great at, you know, TV guys who really knew how to set up a picture perfectly. And then the real question with with Clinton was so good at staying on message and driving the message. And then the you know, what we had to do as especially as editors was well, which way are they driving us? Which way are they trying to take this story? What are they trying to feed us and make us cover and report? And what are they leaving out of this whole picture? So as an editor, it was really a, a, a day-long task of trying to figure out where do they want us to go and why do they want us to go there and why do they want us to stay away from this other thing? And then we need to sort of drive over there and, and look at that. Joe, you obviously covered the story of the end of the last century in Lewinsky, and you covered closely Bush v. Gore in the election of 2000. How did the atmosphere change with President George W. Bush, Ari Fleischer, and how do you handle a transition of different styles and different messages and different stories that suddenly are handed on January 20th of 2001? Well, that's that's been the interesting thing, too, to, to watch it get to the point where, where it is now, which is, you know, Obama just went on a five-day trip, and he took a single question from the U.S. media over five days. I mean, the, the, the tightening of the restrictions and, and lack of transparency in the White House has just grown and grown since, since Clinton. Clinton's people were obviously notorious for, you know, driving the message and, and holding on to it, keeping reporters, telling them what they wanted to know. You know, it was a very clicky sort of uh, situation, a lot of reporters in, and that's, I guess that's always kind of the way it is, is. You're in. You're inside the, the White House, so you need to keep everybody happy there. You can't report too harshly; you'll get closed out. But watching it, you know, watching it over over these these last twelve years, it's 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 really changed enormously. In that, it, it just keeps getting tighter and tighter and tighter. They keep closing out more of the media and controlling the message, and it's it's almost now it's on the verge of being impossible to get outside of the of the White House message and, and find your own story from inside the White House. One of the great things I did at the Washington Times uh, at, at the very end of my career there was get out of the White House. And a lot of people in Washington, it's kind of known that the worst place to cover the White House is from inside the White House. Getting outside of the White House and not needing them to call me back, not needing their comment if they don't want to comment. Uh, you know, I, I made ruffled a lot of feathers so those last two years of covering Obama, but I suddenly didn't need them. And that changes the whole dynamic. If you need them from inside, you've got to really pretty much play ball. And if if you can get outside of it, then you can you can do what you want and find the real story. One of the things that I did, and I want to be upfront with everybody who's listening to us here on Polyoptics, uh, Sirius 110 XM 130, as we speak to Joe Curl, is that Joe was not only a frontline journalist and an editor, he was also part of a very small and elite group of journalists who were tasked with what we used to call, and Josh did many of these, called pre-advances. And we would travel way in advance of a trip like the one that you just mentioned, the President of the United States, having taken a five-day trip through Latin America. It was really a trade mission. 
question. But the formative stage, Josh, of a trip like that happens in the pre-advance where we go and suss out where we might do events, how we might stage them, where we can meet the needs of the journalists who are as critical to this as the people we're going to meet. Josh, talk about that for a second, because I want to bring Joe and I actually traveled together through the Middle East on one of these trips when I served in the White House. That's right, Adam. As you know, and as Joe wrote about this week, President Obama just finished a five-day trip to Latin America. But it's not like he decided to go last week. A trip like this, in which you do several set pieces that are involved in the United States' relationships with South America and Central America, are built in, as are bilateral visits with our neighboring countries and the countries that we do a lot of business with. And to get ready for these trips, it's not just where is the president going to sleep and does the Secret Service have their motorcade mapped out, but is the media ready to cover this uh, as a, as a event that viewers it's kind of it's kind of a partnership right joe it is i mean and josh you know this as well i mean you 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 really get to see this interesting dynamic behind the scenes where where we're not really supposed to report a lot about behind the scenes stuff we're supposed to tell our other reporters that are taking the trip the facts of the trip but but you really watch them and 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 as you know adam you really watch them design the picture that they're going to present to the american people flags over here cheering people over there you know he'll stroll in this way music playing like this i mean they they literally make the picture that's going to be seen around the world and and that just happened again with obama going into the slums i mean that was a you know it looked like he just strolled out into these these uh, you know these shanty towns in in uh, in Latin America, but it was all planned out. Well, let's put a fine point on that. One of the pictures that, to my mind, from a partisan political perspective, people might try and make hay out of this. I I, I would encourage people not to do this because I think as much as it was sort of designed for, it was real in the moment. It was authentic. The president was kicking the soccer ball around with a whole bunch of kids while he was down in Latin America. And that was the kind of thing, these sort of off the schedule moments where the motorcade's going to stop that really give the long lens of history, an idea of what he was doing and how he was meeting people that didn't just have national security implications for those countries. Right. And then the really fascinating thing to think about from the outside is, was it an unscripted moment or did they have a notebook someplace and then the, the president appears to spontaneously kick a soccer ball with youth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is polyoptics and we are trying to pull the curtain back on the theater <laughs> of politics. And I can attest from the last time a U.S. president went to the favelas outside of Rio was President Bill Clinton, and I or- organized it, helped organize it. And it, w- it certainly was not an accident that Pele showed up in the middle of the favela and kicked a soccer ball with President Clinton. So <laughs> right. these things are planned in advance. Yeah, and, and, then the, and, 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 the, and then again, planned even to the point to look spontaneous is, you know, hey, look at the president's just, uh, you know, regular guy kicking a soccer ball. Let me tell you, ball planning out. spontaneity, that's not easy. <laughs> okay, and, but- you know, I want to I want to turn the page here for a second because if you are following this uh, quite closely, this conversation we're having with Joe Curl, I want to add a new wrinkle to it. Joe, you have never spoken on the record about this, but you, for the last couple years, period of time, have been an editor at the Drudge Report. And, you know, Josh and I, if you asked us any time of the day or night, would be sure to tell you almost in unison that we think it is one of the most agenda-setting and politically powerful parts of our digital consciousness today. Right. No, I mean, he's he's just a monolithic figure, I, you know, has, has been doing it for 15 years, uh, broke the 
you know, and it's fascinating the way he even began, just broke the Lewinsky story when another publication decided they weren't going to run it. I mean, he's he's always out ahead, uh, already, you know, again today, setting the kind of agenda on on this new terminology, this kinetic military action that we're, we're, we're involved in, not a war. And then, of course, listening to, you know, the way it's picking up across the spectrum, you know, talk radio all over the place. I'm sure people will be talking about it, about it tonight on the... Uh, nightly news and all the cable channels. He's just, uh, he's really a force to be reckoned with. The editing process of Drudge does an enormous amount of work for producers and correspondents and journalists all across the country because there is some secret sauce in there that (laughs) determines not just what the top of the fold story should be, but what the entertainment story should be and what the sports story should be and what the sort of make-you-laugh-out-loud story should be. There's a wonderful editing process somewhere mixed in what you do, Joe. Well, talking about the trip that, uh, that, that Adam and I went on to the, to the Middle East with, um, with all of these top-notch, uh, you know, big, huge guys in the, in the administration, one of them was Joe Hagan, uh, really... Former deputy chief of staff. And Bush's real right-hand man. And we got, you know, we took a 12-hour flight over there. We walked into the, to the embassy. We all sat down at computers, which we hadn't seen in 12, 15 hours. And I looked around after that and saw that, like, eight of the 10 computers were on the Drudge Report. And Joe Hagan was on the Drudge Report. And I said to Hagan, you know, well, you're looking at the Drudge Report. And he said, hey, it's, it's one-stop shopping. It's got every, every, if it's not on here, I don't need to know it. So your job, though, I mean, we're really taking you on the record to say it is monolithic and it is so powerful. And I want to talk about the power that the Drudge Report has, not only for assignment editors, for reporters, for deputy chiefs of staff in the White House, but from your perspective, you've gone from being a journalist to taking your career, and you're still a journalist in a lot of ways, but you are an aggregator. You have an almost 30,000-foot ability to see the world en masse. You talked about how it was easier for you finally to escape the White House and covering it. You are above the bubble in some ways, and people think, well, I've seen the Drudge Report. It's, it's a quick link for me, but well, we're talking to somebody who is the Drudge Report in many ways. <laughs> well, Matt Drudge is the, is the unique and single Drudge Report, uh, and and you know one of the things that that it that it does is it really is, and people have, in, especially in Washington, have known this for a long time. It's really sort of the assignment editor for the world. I mean, he's he's out ahead of the story, and he's you know as I, when I was a reporter, we used to get you know phone calls all the time from editors saying. You know, hey, this is on the Drudge Report, and I remember being in a filing center somewhere in the world and far away, and I looked around. A big story had just broken on Drudge, and you know, almost every computer of the Washington of the White House press corps was tuned to Drudge. I mean, it's literally, and I'm sure the phones were ringing saying, "Hey, you know, Drudge has got this. Can you go match it?" It's, it's, it's always, it's always far ahead of of it. And again, back to the point that I was talking about with the White House and the picture that they want to present. You know, there's there's the talking points and there's the message that they want to put out daily. And the real question is getting off of that message and what else is going on that's behind the scenes or not getting the coverage. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating that really hasn't gotten any coverage over this time, we've had the, the earthquake and then we've had, you know, all the tsunami, all the things that are happening, the budget's going crazy. You've got, you know, Obama way. But you had those photographs that appeared, 4,000 photographs and videos that appeared of these army soldiers. And what was the headline on Drudge? Uh, Drudge, is, uh, Drudge wrote the headline, which was Obama Grabe, like Abu Grabe, Obama Grabe. 
but it's it's really has not resonated at all. It's 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 again another story that the mainstream media just decided not to pick up. It's it's literally you know it's so similar to the situation that happened in Abu Ghraib. You've got soldiers that are that are you know holding up these dead civilians in trophy photographs, and the story has gone nowhere. And for a while, all you the only place you've seen it recently is on the Drudge Report. No one has no one has picked it up. It's it's amazing. Joe, one of the things that I think captures people's imagination at the Drudge Report is that the imagery that is there is is the kind of imagery that you won't find anywhere else. When you are an assignment editor or you're an editor at the, the Washington Times or even in the White House, you talk about trying to dial in and keep the message structure very tight, but it's those images that really capture people's attention, right? Because that's your, that's the first thing you see and it either captures you or it doesn't. Right, and just like we were talking about a minute ago, I mean, the White House has has really carefully prepared a photograph. They even put the photographers on a certain angle yep. and keep them in a little pen so that that's the angle they shoot at. So, again, getting outside of that angle or showing, you know, one of the things that was amazing about the tsunami, you could you could show this massive destruction from above from a helicopter, or you could show one woman holding her one last possession. It, 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 you know, that's the kind of picture that is, is a force. I mean, just seeing, you know, a single human being affected by this rather than the massive destruction. So, you know, try and, and, and same with, there are great pictures that get taken of, of Obama every day, but they don't get moved by, by the editors at the AP or Reuters in different places because they sort of, Try to fulfill this cookie-cutter mentality of... And that's the point I was trying to make, and I think that's... Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, because we've had this conversation on polyoptics here on POTUS, Sirius 110, XM 130 before, this idea that what the wires move is so infinitesimal compared to the images that are actually out there for people to look at. I mean, if you go right now to Yahoo News Photos, you see more that happened on Obama's trip to South America than you'll ever get through the New York Times or the major news networks uh, or the Drudge Report. There is, you have to go to uh, the photo stream of the major news wires or the White House official photographer's photo stream to see a lot of the visual sense of what happened on that trip. And that's, that's a reality of today's journalism. But in some ways, though, Joe, that is the promise that Drudge gives to the average person who wouldn't know how to go look up Getty Images or isn't really tuned in to Yahoo News Photos the way that we are. But finding this stuff, it's open source, it's there. But being able to understand and know, like you do, the 360-degree view of what is possible to see versus what other people want you to see, that's how Drudge engages the world, I think. Joe, I'm on the site right now. I'm looking at a place that not a lot of people usually look, but it's bottom right. And it's 9,500,000,000 visits to Drudge in the last year. When you think about the circulation of the newspaper that you write for today, what's the difference in what you consider your responsibility or, or the, the influence of being able to connect with 9.5 billion people over 365 days? <laughs> well, boy, that's, uh, that's actually kind of a frightening responsibility I've never thought about. Joe, the headlines that accompany these images on the Drudge Report are evocative, to my mind, of something that oftentimes you might see in the New York Post. Not because they're bombastic, but because they they synthesize issues and they cut right to the heart or they beg a question that maybe no one else is asking. 
Do you believe that that is what, in, in a lot of ways, sets Drudge apart? They're doing news and working in a way that really cuts down to a common denominator thread that people can identify with. Well, yeah, I mean, just like, you know, just like everyone else in Washington for for years and years before I was there, we would watch the Drudge Report and, and see what was on it. And, you know, so often he's he's out ahead again of everything and and cutting through you know he'll even he'll even just you know pick the story of the day and and it's not the story of the day until he picks it and then it becomes the story josh i remember uh what it was like to be a journalist in washington during uh the impeachment period in the clinton administration can you talk as an insider for a second about what it was to be getting headlines off the drudge report inside the white house well, I mean, this is a time, remember, when I think Drudge used the siren a whole lot more than he does today. <laughs> right. This is a time when maybe every couple of days you'd get the blue and red siren that was showing some new development. And that's this is when I, I suspect, and I don't presume to know Matt or understand how he does it, does what he does, but his inbox must have been filling with great stuff. And I remember that Matt was doing a whole lot more writing and posting under the Matt Drudge name than a reader currently sees. And, you know, as a person who's now far removed from politics, I miss seeing the style and writing that Matt would use when he was breaking an exclusive. And it's it's now because I, I, I look at the site a lot, but I see a, a lot less writing from Matt. Well, Josh, you, you have a you have a good perspective from there. What, what was it like in the in the White House when he would when he would post things? Was there a pandemonium? Was there a call out for everyone? Quick, let's respond. Or what happened at the White House? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Joe, I left the White House in December of 97. So probably three weeks before the Lewinsky oh, right. issue broke. But as a person just removed from there and who almost craved an understanding of minute by minute disclosures of what was happening, that was the place to go because it would take a lot longer for the major newspapers and for Time and Newsweek and U.S. News to filter through what they were going to say and get to their publishing deadlines. We had an updated headline every few hours or less. And so if you really wanted the equivalent of a, of a news feed of this issue, that's the one website that you were stu- that you stuck to. Right. Polyoptics, uh, we're going to put you on the spot now, Joe, because you have a credibility and a history that puts you in a, in a great place to answer this question. We try to answer it all the time. As you compare the Obama administration and their use of visual imagery, their ability to either synthesize a message in a in a, in a visual way and put it behind the president or not. Um, with the other presidencies that you've covered, how do you rate them, and, and what is your idea about where we are today in the Obama administration marrying image and message and, and the theater of politics? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, coming in, covering, covering the White House, a lot of White House reporters complained, you know, there are longtime reporters there, as you know, that have been there for 30 years, and each successive president gets harder to get information from. They each, get angrier and angrier. They get angrier, madder and madder, and everyone gets, you know, it's it's tougher and tougher. And, you know, a lot of people were frustrated with, with George W. Bush, and, you know, I knew before Obama came in that these guys are going to be even harder to get information from, and they're going to be even tighter. You know, obviously, with his teleprompters and, and his, you know, very selective use, I mean, here we are six days into a, what we're, I guess, now calling a kinetic military action. And Don't not a call war. it a war, Joe. <laughs> but, but, you know, the president of the United States has not spoken. I mean, that's how tightly they're controlling his optics in this case, which is, 
you know, Reagan took took one little military action at one point in his presidency and came out and told the American people about it. It wasn't a war. It was we 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 fired some missiles into a place. I'm coming to tell you what we did, which is what you know, president needs to tell the American people. Apparently, you know, this president consulted with a few top leaders, but the rest of wait till Congress gets back. A lot of these lawmakers are angry and are about to to spew venom toward the president, including Democrats. But so he's been very successful in controlling that. It's just that even the idea of of going on this trip, this five day trip in the middle of just such catastrophe. There are a lot of people that say the president's not engaged in the budget negotiations, which he's not. You've got you know a nuclear meltdown, and we're sending a few nuclear. You're talking about Japan. In Japan, there's we we're sending a few nuclear scientists in there to fiddle around with a few things and. And then you've got, um, you know, Libya going like crazy. And he's, you know, he's in Brazil when he declares what I guess is not war, but some some kind of military action. It's I think he's in I think he's in control of of the picture and the message when he wants it. It's just that they keep choosing these what they put out there and where they decide to be when they do it is what's been unusual about this president. But, Joe, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, which we talked about how you as a member of the White House press corps and as a representative of the White House pool would accompany people like Adam and myself on a pre-advance, you do know how long in advance and how many set pieces are involved in a trip like this. And you also know, we all know, frankly, from those still pictures that were released by the White House of the president receiving uh, or engaging in a, uh, a confidential telephone call right. in, a, in a tent in a hotel room somewhere, that he can maintain full communications with the command and control structure. So at, at what point does it become an accepted aspect of the presidency that U.S. presidents kind of have to keep to their schedules and can do and can multitask? Well, yeah, there's no question that that's completely different nowadays. I mean, you know, I used to talk to on these pre-advances, talk to some of these Secret Service guys, and uh, and they talked about how they would build the white tent in each of these places. I mean, they've got a, a structure they move from place to place that's that's totally secure, and and the president's never out of contact with anyone. But again, I was talking to a Reuters reporter, a longtime Reuters reporter, and and I said, you know. Maybe it wasn't such a great idea, even though it was 65 over the weekend a couple of weeks ago, and the president decided to go play golf. Maybe, maybe you know, with, with Japan going nuts and Libya going nuts and all these things that are happening, maybe they should put out a picture of him in the Oval Office working. I mean, one of the problems with, with this job is it is 24-7, and I've never really thought any president takes a break. Even when, when Clinton would go to, you know, um, Martha's Vineyard for three weeks or Bush would go to... Um, Crawford. Crawford for, you know, a week or two weeks. These guys are never off duty. But on the other hand, that's the job these guys chose to be in. So that's that's what they need to do. I, I, I think I think it's right that they are in touch. They're having secure meetings across the world with, with, with these military leaders. The question, again, is exactly what you guys are talking about, is the optics of it. Is it... Is it something that we should be seeing with the president playing soccer when, you know, our military is lobbing missiles into into Libya? Or should he be at the White House? Again, just optics, just the visions of, uh, you know, the visuals of this story. Should he be there in the Situation Room putting out reports and, and, and giving us, you know, the White House giving readouts of the president being hands-on in, a, you know, an underway military operation? That's the big question. And... You know, there's no question that the president can stay in touch and 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 be fully informed about everything that's happening. 
But the visuals of that, again, is, you know, meanwhile, here's a picture of him, you know, playing soccer or, or as we saw, doing the sambo with some school children, which is wonderful, but maybe not, maybe more wonderful when, when the budget's solved and, you know, the 65 million people who are unemployed all have jobs and, I, and all that. I want to, Josh, I want to share a quick story because I, I appreciate where you're coming from with the question that you just asked, Joe, and I agree with you 100% that... Uh, not only can a president multitask, and I know having been inside that white tent, having been a part of the formative stages of setting up a trip that the president is engaged in, most definitely the, the American public should not be confused uh, about whether or not President Obama was uh, had his hands on the wheel during this period. He most certainly did. The question, though, when we talk about the optics, the perception of it, it goes back to something that I think I started to experience as a, as a producer at the network level. I used to produce uh, Good Morning America at ABC, and uh, I learned some lessons there that I, I had to relearn, Josh, when I was at the White House uh, as Deputy Communications Director, and that is that best laid plans and all the money and all the things that put events into place ultimately can be discarded in a moment's time when news pops up or, or it's just no longer appropriate to do it. And so it's that balancing act of, well, we've got $30,000 in on an event, and that is pales in comparison to the president's time and the thoughtfulness that goes into presidential-level events. But I do think that there is a balancing act here of perception versus reality that maybe had gotten a bit out of kilter, Josh. What do you think? Well, I think that we spent a lot of time during the Clinton years and some could argue that you were also running away from some domestic matters. But we spent a lot of time during the Clinton years trying to rebuild America's image in the world. And you could say that during the administration of George W. Bush, America became more insular again. And maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. But this president has decided to again reach out to the world. And part of that is to take Air Force One to remote locations and show the flag and show the president engaging with his counterparts and also with people from, frankly, economies like Brazil, Russia, India, China. They're going to have enormous influence in the, in the lives of my children and my children's children. There's a great parallel between what just happened in, uh, in, in Libya. That, you know, that, that began on March 19th. And March 19th is, of course... The anniversary of the, the anniversary launching of, of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Right. And, and so what, what, what's really interesting about that is that I had been on a pre-advance, I, I don't think you were on that one, to, to Africa. The Bush people were going out to, to Africa in March of 2003. We had been on the, on the pre-advance in, uh, in December and January. And uh, right before the trip came up, the president said, I'm not going. He was going to do five nations in, in Africa, go on a you know an eight-day trip. And we didn't I got really, to do the make good trip, and that was a hell of a yeah, trip. Yeah, that was a fantastic trip. But we didn't know why we didn't know why he didn't go, but there were mm. an awful lot of things going on. And the president said, you know, I'm gonna go back to Africa at another time. It's very busy here. I can't go now. And that's I think a call that 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 I had predicted it to a bunch of my colleagues, and so I, I, I was wrong and I have to buy them all beers because I predicted it. But I predicted he wouldn't go. I thought Obama would say, you know, there's just too much going on. And I agree with both of you that he's absolutely hands-on. I'm sure he's being informed of everything. But again, it's the optics of of this whole thing that, you know, if you right now and look where we are right now, six days later, we're all wondering who's who's running this operation and, in, in, you know, that, that's happening in Libya. Is NATO running it? France and, and the UK seem to be shying away from it. We're talking about being out of it in days, not weeks. We're not really sure who's running it or what it is. 
So it just seems as if you know there 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 could have easily been. Then you look, then you couch it against the fact that this was a trade mission. It was a feel good mission to go down and talk to uh, you know an ally. Apparently, we're going to buy all of our oil now from Brazil instead of uh, drill for it ourselves. So we went down there to tell them we're going to want their oil when they when they bring it up uh, out of the ground. But but then you weigh that against all the things the president that the president had on his plate. And sure, you know, a president can multitask and do an awful lot of things. The question is then. What's the perception to America if 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 he's out doing these things, these seemingly important things of of finding jobs in Brazil for Americans, then that just doesn't match up with the with the and it's not as if there's not a lot going. There's always a lot going on in the world. But right now, a particularly enormous amount of things happening. This is a great discussion that we are going to continue here on Polyoptics as we go forward week after week. Joe Curl, we're really lucky to have you here to share a little bit behind the scenes of how a major internet principle like the Drudge Report actually uh, impacts the world from somebody who knows it best. Uh, I want to thank you for being here on Polyoptics. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Adam. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Josh. Turn down the noise and tune in to POTUS. Sirius 110, XM 130. We are joined now by CNN senior White House correspondent Ed Henry. Welcome back from Latin America, my friend. Thank you so much, Adam. Great to talk to you. It has been one of those trips where I think you you did, what, three countries in five days? Yeah, you know, what people don't get to see on the air, uh, it seems very glamorous from afar to be running around South America and Central America with the President of the United States, whether it's President Bush, President Obama. Uh, You and I both traveled a fair bit in different roles with different presidents, and uh, it seems very glamorous, but what you don't see on TV is the fact that we got up uh, most days about 3 a.m. to catch a 4 a.m. bus uh, to then get a plane at 5 a.m. to take us to the next uh, Latin American country on a four- or five-hour flight, uh, and then get off the plane and go right to your workspace and never really see the country, but immediately go do your live shots. Not that I'm whining about it, because it's a wonderful job. And and this trip in particular was pretty exciting and pretty challenging because of what was happening uh, 5,000 miles away in Libya. Uh, But uh, what's interesting is the mechanics uh, behind the scenes that I know you like to get into the stagecraft and and some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff. And, uh, you know, in in order to stay ahead of the president and 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 do our live shots and file our stories and be in place for when he gets to the next country, the next stop uh, on on the three country tour, um, you're basically sleeping two three hours a night to get on the bus at o dark thirty as we like to call it, uh, o dark thirty in order to uh, to get ahead of the president. And so uh, by the time you're done with one of these trips, it seems very glamorous from afar, but all you want to do is come home and sleep. I bet I've been there too. Uh, one thing I wanted to start with as we discuss the polyoptics of of the president's trip to Latin America, Ed, is what this trip was really all about from the White House's perspective. It was a trade mission, and a lot of the events that were scheduled around it played into this narrative and this theme for the president. So let's start there. Take us from the beginning of this trip with with a polyoptics view of what these stops along the way were and what the president was trying to achieve. Well, you know, putting aside Libya, as you say, it was supposed to be about trade. It was supposed to be about how uh, this economic partnership with Latin America is evolving. And, you know, most people don't realize that the United States gets about one-third of its orange juice, for example, from Brazil, uh, not from Florida, you know, but from Brazil, and that uh, something like one-third of our beef, I believe, comes from Brazil as well. And so there's all of this trade and and economic uh, uh, movement back and forth that most Americans don't really know about, but is something that President Obama is 
trying to put a premium on now as he looks for ways to create jobs. You know, right now there are some big, uh, you know, uh, trade deals already in place with Brazil, uh, U.S. companies that are doing business down there that are supporting jobs right here in the U.S. Uh, and he's, he was trying on this trip to expand that, uh, knowing full well that, frankly, there are a lot of skeptical Americans who, you know, from uh, having done this for President Bush, that, you know, you try to sell something like that and they say, well, wait a second. Uh, in fact, um, there are other jobs that might, uh, you know, get hurt or people might lose their job uh, because of some of these trade deals. So you've got to do a lot of a lot of hard work to, no, to no sell doubt. these efforts. Typically, what happens on these trips involve the kind of things we do see on CNN, which are often joint press conferences or bilateral meetings with heads of state. But the president did some other things while he was there, too. He was also accompanied by his wife and two daughters and his mother-in-law. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't really show the family too much uh, during this trip. And, and you're right, from a, from an optical standpoint, it might help him politically, maybe, if he showed his kids or showed more interaction with his wife. But he tends to kind of wall them off and try to keep the personal side separate. Uh, and we try to keep our distance because it's not our job to kind of chase his kids around South America. We're there to cover the president. There's a fine uh, line there. And obviously some of his critics think he'll use his kids when, when it's politically beneficial. There are other times when he when he won't. Um, they're gonna, critics are going to fight that out. Uh, but, but I think on this one, he was trying to be all business, first of all, on trade, and then secondly, on Libya, when, when that popped up over the weekend. So let's and, talk about that. So he didn't want to you know, make this like a family excursion when there was so much big business happening. You know, you say that Libya popped up over the weekend, but the reality is that on the 18th of March, a Friday, the president made a statement in the East Room on Libya. It was then clear that the United Nations had approved a no-fly zone. But what really popped up, and this is something that you were on the front lines reporting about, was that the action led by the French at the first seemed to have come out of nowhere and caught the, the White House a little flat-footed on their messaging and, and letting Americans know. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think I don't think that the White House was caught flat-footed by the by um, by the the French. I mean, I, I think certainly there were some behind-the-scenes um, back and forth that suggested maybe the French moved out a little quicker than the U.S. expected. But the U.S. They knew this was coming. It wasn't, you know, a complete surprise that that the the military action in Libya was going to probably move forward over the weekend. They just didn't know exactly when. Uh, and I wonder, in retrospect, you're right. They, the White House did a lot of work behind the scenes Friday at the White House before the president ever left for Latin America. But then they seemed to just kind of let him go off on the trip like sort of business as usual without maybe on Saturday morning really saying, look, this is about to pop out there as a major, major thing. Uh, and they still kind of let him on Saturday do all the official stuff in Brasilia as if this were still a trade mission. And when in fact it became sort of one of those cable stories where there are two boxes, there's sort of the trade mission box on one side. And meanwhile, on the other side, there's this box with Libya and the Libya box obviously grew bigger and bigger you know, as that the was weekend went on. That was one of the things for me when I was in the communications uh, shop at the White House and I did a lot of pre-advance work and you talked a little bit about you know, what it is to constantly uh, advance the president to be where he's going to be for a major event uh, in these foreign trips. But my biggest concern, believe it or not, all the hard work that would go into making sure that when you and the, the other top journalists show up at an event that it's already you know it's all set the choreography is done the messaging is there the set design the backdrop of which admittedly the obama administration is on sort of the low side of they don't do a lot of that we saw a lot of flags here but my big concern ed was always what happens 
when the president has to make a statement on something that has nothing to do with the trip, are we prepared for a, what we would call, you know, an emergency statement, place where you'd gather CNN and, and the other networks to come together and ask the president a question or hear a statement from the president on an issue like Libya. And that, as you say, didn't seem to be in place to, to facilitate something like that. Well, initially, but I think they, they quickly adjusted. And, and I will say that, you know, the president made just such a statement on Libya, what you might say, an emergency statement, something uh, off the schedule, you know, if you will, that uh, on Saturday afternoon, early evening. Uh, How did Eastern that come time. about? Tell me the story. What You guys were behind yeah, the well, scenes. You knew first. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the uh, president was sort of going through the motions on a normal day uh, of uh, welcoming ceremonies and whatnot in Brasilia, Brazil. Uh, and next thing you know, we start getting rumblings that maybe the president's going to make some sort of statement on Libya. Uh, meanwhile, there was a briefing going on at the Pentagon that was embargoed for a few hours. And, and during that, we, we were able to jump on the phone from Brazil with the Pentagon conference call. And on that call, the Pentagon, various Pentagon officials were indicating uh, that the military action was imminent and, and, and were, they were kind of laying out that the U.S. was going to be involved. And so we had this sort of off-the-record knowledge that we keep off the record for obvious reasons to keep our, you know, men and women in uniform safe. You know, we can't rush on air and say in about an hour something is going to happen. But uh, I think the government was trying to give us some sort of a heads up so that we knew it was imminent, but not give us Get, not get too specific for the safety of the troops, which obviously makes some make, makes sense. Um, and then all of a sudden, we, we knew the president's going to make a statement. Well, once the president, we get rumblings, he's going to make a statement. Uh, it tells you, well, he's preparing the American people for the fact that this is on. And so suddenly, the trip changed dramatically. You're listening to Polyoptics on Sirius 110 XM 130. I'm Adam Belmar. We're joined by Ed Henry, senior White House correspondent for CNN. Ed, where did that statement take place? And you know, how far off the schedule did it put them? And, uh, you know, in addition to that, I want you to sort of give me, you know, from somebody who's seen so many of these trips and so many elements of them, how did they play? What were the reactions in the room? Was the president well served by his staff? And, and were these things up to par to your eye? Well, to my eye, what I, what was interesting about it was how the president, who had sort of had this, you know, normal kind of jolly, you know, shake hands, welcome, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a Democratic president or Republican president or whether it's Brazil or Italy. These ceremonies, as you know, uh, tend to all blend in where, you know, there's a handshake, there's a gift exchange. Uh, it, it all blends in. But this all of a sudden, when he left the welcoming, the officialness uh, of arriving in Brazil and went into this uh, government building, I believe it was in Brasilia, to make this statement, it was interesting how his tone shifted. Uh, and he was very sober, very serious, um, the sort of, you know, it, th this was serious stuff. And and I think he did convey that. Uh, what, what was interesting, sort of a little behind the scenes tip, it was, um, since this was sort of an unexpected statement, uh, normally if we know the president's going to give a speech in Brasilia, the U.S. television networks, we pool our resources, that's why I call it the, you know, the, the transmission pool that will transmit the images, the sound, and the video back to the United States from wherever the president is, would normally have some sort of a satellite truck set up or something for a presidential speech. In this case, since it just happened unexpectedly, there was no way in, in the so initial you guys moments, just rolled tape and had to run back to a feed point? We were, so normally we were going to roll tape and run back to a place to, to, to feed the satellite. But, uh, interesting, the producer who was handling it uh, this day, I say with pride, was CNN's Washington Bureau Chief, David Borman. Uh, and he was traveling with the president along with us. Uh, and he thought of the 
in some ways simple, in some ways ingenious idea, uh, to hold up a cell phone to the president, a speaker, because he was in the room with the president with just a small group of reporters, and the, the, the White House uh, Communications Agency sets up some speakers so that all of this can be transmitted to the people in the room. Uh, he held up his cell phone uh, to that speaker and transmitted that back to the uh, to one of the very many satellites we had overseas, and we were able to beam that back to the United States in real time. Just the audio, no video. I love that uh, you. A, I love that you shared that with us, <laughs> because for people who are listening to us here, uh, you have to understand that the inside the world of television uh, that covers the White House, David Borman, who is the uh, the bureau chief at CNN is legendary producer of great acclaim, but he's also probably best known as being an innovator of new technologies and really has changed the way that Americans see so much of the theater around the way that politics is covered. And yet here, David Borman is, of all people, being the producer with Ed Henry, <laughs> and he's holding a cell phone up, and he's got the low-tech solution to Right, uh, the low-tech solution problem. of holding up a cell phone so that all the broadcast networks back in the United States had the opportunity to run the president's audio about the military mission in Libya beginning live. Um, and so it's a way to use technology with kind of an old-school idea of, of let's what can we hold up. You know, back in the day, it might have been some sort of walkie-talkie. Now it's a cell phone, an iPhone, uh, whatever it may be. And, and, you know, you mentioned David Borman. He's the person who, with John King, created the Magic wall so that CNN could change the way we cover politics a bit. He, you know, uh, had used the hologram with Jessica Yellen as part of our coverage in 2008 uh, and a lot of other uh, uh, innovations. So I also appreciate that you allowed me to suck up to the boss a little bit. Well, yeah, no, he's, as I say, <laughs> legendary in this business and in Washington. You've been through a lot of this. You're not just a television journalist. You have a very long career covering Washington. You are a great writer, uh, and you. Oh, now you're going to get me in trouble with my colleagues. I'm not just a television journalist. <laughs> well, no, I, but, but I think my point is that you're you're a veteran reporter of Washington, having covered yeah, both kidding. ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. But the elements of this trip for me really did resonate around a few pictures, and they were ones that we didn't really see on television. And I mm -hmm. want to know if you saw them and what you thought. Number sure. one was was a picture of, of President Obama uh, in what we would call a uh, unscheduled stop where he just pulled up, got out of the car, and was kicking the soccer ball around with mm -hmm. some young kids. And then you also had pictures that were very well choreographed of the president um, at uh, Christ the Redeemer, this very iconic statue of, statue of yeah, yeah. Brazil. Talk about that for a second. Well, you know, I mean, we use those images a little bit, but, you know, at some point uh, when the coverage is really more and more about what is a president saying and doing, what kind of briefings uh, will he be getting behind the scenes on Libya, um, using a president kicking around a soccer ball becomes a little incongruous. And so uh, you're more likely to use, you know, uh, an image of the president being briefed by Tom Donilon or Bill Daly or one of his staffers, because it kind of fits the story and the, and the seriousness of it. Now, uh, I will say on the flip side, once you... Um, uh, run those pictures of, of the president kicking around the soccer ball. There's always the, the chance we put the images out there. People do what they will with them. That critics are going to say, well, why is he kicking around a soccer ball when he should be focusing more on, on Libya? And I think you probably, having advised President Bush, then President Bush had Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terror in general to deal with, and yet he still went down to the ranch or, or you know had his vacations or did official trips to... Uh, I, I was in Latin America with President Bush, for example, in 2007, I believe, and you're constantly uh, juggling 
handling, you know, the official business of of real serious issues of war and peace uh, with you know a trade mission or with a vacation. Um, and 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 that's why I think in terms of the optics, the one thing that we should talk about is how when the trip ended up getting shrunken down just by a few hours there, and the president decided to come back to D.C. a little bit early, uh, one thing that he did was cut out of his schedule in uh, El Salvador on Wednesday this tour of Mayan ruins he was going to do, kind of almost like a tourist stop. There were some of Uh, us who were wondering why this was ever on the list of things to do in the first place. Well, you know, from an optics you know, perspective, the, the sure. Mayans would have you believe that <laughs> Social Security reform is not important because the whole world's going to end next year anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is that question. Okay, fair enough. But we haven't really had a chance to mention yet more than you know a little brief mention at the top was the president was not just doing the official business. He brought his wife. She was there for some of the official state dinners and whatnot, but also his daughters, uh, his mother-in-law, and so he was also trying to squeeze in a little bit of time with them, maybe a little bit of historic you know knowledge to pass on. To them. He's got two young daughters, very interested in history. I remember when we went to Russia, for example, in the first year in 2009, uh, I remember the president, when I interviewed him, telling me a story about how his uh, daughters really loved going into the Kremlin. I mean, how cool would that be to be, you know, eight or nine years old and Absolutely. have your dad bring you into the Kremlin? And then uh, I think he told me that, that his youngest daughter uh, made it made some sort of a joke about wearing a trench coat and being a spy or so, you know, something <laughs> the next morning and teasing her dad about that. Well, those are lighter moments you don't always hear about. Um, and I think maybe before they knew that Libya was going to be the story this past weekend, like, say, two months ago, when this trip was in the planning stages, um, this was, you know, his daughters had spring break, and they wanted to get a little bit of sightseeing in. Uh, I think that once this story kept snowballing in its seriousness, sightseeing becomes less and less important, in part because those images could be turned around on you from an optical standpoint, you know, yeah. the polyoptics that you talk about. The president's got a campaign coming up in 2012, and the last thing he wants in the middle of military action in Libya uh, is a picture of him sightseeing. I mean, I th- let's just face it. Just to agree with you, I think that balance that you've given voice to is exactly right, because the the long lens of history that we often get as producers, both of television, but perhaps more so behind the scenes as a producer, for lack of a better word, for the president or the presidency, is all of these images will create a a lasting narrative of where he was, what he did, and how he did it. And this image of the president with two beautiful young daughters and his wife in tow is very evocative in my mind of a young, healthy, strong president who took time to uh, share the world with his own family and to connect on a real level, at least to give the image that he has, and I believe he has, with people on the ground, not just leaders. And I think we saw that a little bit with where the president chose to give the major speech of the trip. You know, what What I was thinking about during this trip, and it'd be something interesting for you to explore not just today, but in your show uh, in the weeks ahead, is given the technology we now have, presidents can now have these secure video conferences with their, you know, war commanders, uh, military leaders in real time. I mean, the president can be in a hotel in Brazil and set up a secure video conference that five years ago he probably couldn't have done because there would have been a fear that, you know, the, the hotel was not secure enough. Well, now they have the technology to beam in, you know, 
Defense Secretary Gates and Secretary of State Clinton. Uh, and so you can stay in Brazil and not rush back to Washington because you have the technology to have this secure conversation. But the optics are such that there's great pressure on the president. Whether, again, I'm not defending or, or opposing him on that. Well, there's a Democrat, Republican, um, uh, that maybe you should be going back to Washington, even though the technology is there for you to stay in Brazil, should you rush back? And it's a tough call for these leaders because uh, on the flip side of it is, you know, Latin America is a, a, a very important uh, part of the world, and, and these trade relationships are important. And if you just run out uh, halfway through the trip, you may do some damage to that relationship, uh, even as you try to make sure you're on top of Libya. It's a tough balance for any president. Uh, and I think that um, based on some of the reaction on Capitol Hill, there are not just Republicans, but some Democrats who maybe think that the president didn't have the balance quite right on this Latin America trip. And I think in an odd kind of way, the technology makes it even more challenging now because you would think that the technology helps the president stay on top of these world events. But in a, in a weird kind of way, it might make it more complicated yeah, about I, what, you know, because you I don't like have to, to run back to the White House Situation Room anymore. <laughs> you can create your own Situation Room in a hotel well, in that, Brazil. That's exactly right. And I, and I like to say, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. And, sure. and you know, uh, Pete Souza, the president's photographer, to be honest with you, I, I would not have authorized the release of this photo. But if you look at the White House Flickr stream, they released a picture of the president in what we would call a skiff, a secure space that mm -hmm. was created within a hotel room. This is what you were talking about, mm -hmm. where he can use a secure telephone and can also do, do a, a civets or a secure video teleconference and something I used to do a lot with the sit room, both from Washington and abroad. And you're right, the capability for the president to honestly be the president anywhere on the earth is always there. But how it looks and whether or not it needs to be seen or, or, or comprehended another way is a larger issue that they're still grappling with, I think. Absolutely, because, I mean, I think CEOs are dealing with this. Uh, you know, they're on vacation and, you know, all of a sudden some company has their stock blowing up over s some big fraud issue uh, and they're skiing in Aspen and they're trying to decide, well, I could do this by email, I could do this by conference call, or maybe I should get on a plane and end my vacation. I think leaders uh, sometimes have to, for political reasons, have to err on the side of canceling vacations or canceling working trips sometimes or maybe to not deal playing with golf. crises. Yeah, or maybe not playing golf. I mean, you'll notice that President Bush, as you know better than anyone in terms of the image, stopped, stopped playing golf uh, after that Michael Moore movie because the image of him playing yeah. golf, uh, he felt, and he acknowledged this at, uh, later on to Mike Allen uh, when he did an interview with him late, late in his presidency. I that, was sitting in the uh, room. The image was, was not good. And yeah. so uh, leaders wrestle with this all the time. And President Bush used to take a lot of heat for being down at the ranch in Texas a lot. Well, on the other side, presidents are still entitled to vacations, you know, I mean, they're entitled to time off like the rest of us, whether it's, you know, President Obama going to Hawaii, President Bush going to Texas. Um, and I think I was in Crawford, Texas, for example, one time when uh, 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 Prime Minister Bhutto uh, was assassinated in, in mm -hmm. Pakistan. Uh, President Bush had no idea that that was going to happen, and, and he didn't cancel his trip. Instead, he came out, he made a statement about it, but I didn't hear people on the Republican side saying, cancel your, your stop down at the ranch, get back to Washington right away. I mean, as you know, Pakistan has a nuclear arsenal. Uh, you know, at the time, that was a very, very tense moment as to whether Pakistan was stable or not. Uh, and, and President Bush, as I recall, went on, went on with his vacation. Well, he was still able to stay on top of the situation down in Texas. I think similarly, this president was able to stay on top of the situation from Latin America. Nevertheless, as we're saying, with the technology, even though 
you can. Sometimes it's not the best decision to do that because from an image standpoint, from an optic standpoint, it might blow up in your face. And you are absolutely right that uh, both sides tend to take these jabs at, at the other, and there is a great deal of inconsistency, as we can find, in what people thought wasn't a problem for one president and now seems to be on the other. Ed Henry, senior correspondent at the White House for CNN. Thank you for joining us. Where is the president off to next? You guys are going to saddle up and head out again, aren't you? He's got a big uh, trip in May uh, to Europe. Uh, There's going to be a G8 summit that I think President Sarkozy is hosting in France. Uh, There's going to be an official state visit to the U.K. He's added a stop in Ireland, uh, which I have a personal uh, family interest in. And then he's also now added a stop to Poland. Uh, So that's going to be kind of an interesting uh, European trip in May. Uh, And then, of course, he's got a big one coming up up in November uh, because uh, the APEC, uh, Asia-Pacific Economic Summit, which usually is in Asia or the Pacific, well, the U- since the U.S. is a member uh, of that organization, the U.S. gets to host it every few years. And so this one's going to be in Honolulu. So you'll get to be- see me in my Hawaiian shirts uh, a month early in November instead of waiting till, till the normal I Christmas cannot time wait. when I break them out. So I know you're looking forward to that, Adam, and, and, and I'm going to do it just for you. Well, you're a good friend. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Adam. We'll do it again soon. Be well. POTUS. Less noise, more news. Sirius 110, XM 130. All right, I want to bring Josh King back into the conversation here. Josh, a lot on on the president's plate coming up in the weeks ahead. We're going to have a lot to talk about here on Polyoptics. And this this follows a typical uh, year calendar when... The first couple of months of the year are focused on what's happening domestically, Congress in session, dealing with domestic matters. When it comes to May, June, you've got summits, you've got G7s, you've got uh, visits to foreign lands, and that's sort of what a president does in the early summer months once once Congress breaks. And I think uh, our job on polyoptics is going to be to uh, see how well they strike that balance between what's going on on the ground and what's going on in the rest of the world. The president is a very busy man. And as long as Air Force One is sitting at Andrews Air Force Base, fully fueled, ready to go, he can hit any place on the planet. For Josh King, I'm Adam Belmar. Thanks for listening to Polyoptics on POTUS, Politics of the United States. POTUS, Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS. POTUS. Sirius 110, XM 130.